Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a Star Trek podcast about discovery from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm already super incoherent and bad at this. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. You know, this show does a couple of things, Ben. It, uh, it, it destigmatizes the idea of hosting a Star Trek podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it doesn't do is set any kind of example for coherence <laughs> or, or broadcast quality. Yeah, it sure doesn't. Um, the uh, so this will this is our our end of season one wrap up mop up podcast, and uh, this will be a little bit like less structured of an episode. It'll be more of a greatest gen after dark, yeah. Kind of a by which I mean to say we'll have our dicks out. It's after dark for me, Ben. I I sort of had a great day. I spent. I had one of those dream days that uh, yeah. that involved doing nothing but watching Star Trek Discovery all day <laughs> from the moment I woke up. Yeah, it was. We did have um, a lot of TV to rewatch for this. Here's the thing that I that I discovered. Yeah. Uh, in the rewatch, is you can get it done in a day. Like I didn't, but yeah. you can. That's possible. I did not either. I. I Spaced it over like three days. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did four yesterday, and the the other uh, eleven today. Oh man, it's a lot in a single day. <laughs> that dude. is that is a big lift. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been buried in some other stuff, like pussy. <laughs> right, because because uh, when you have a Star Trek podcast, let alone two Star Trek podcast, sex comes it like an avalanche. You're drowning in that sweet sweet purse. <laughs> We're just turning all of our listeners away. Um, one thing, speaking of uh, speaking of gender, Adam, <laughs> one thing that I like finally snapped into focus for me is a thing about the uniforms in this show. Yeah, the men all have five stripes on their shoulders, and the women all have four stripes on their shoulders. I thought that was a really weird and specific choice. I did not notice that. Yeah. And then they have six on their pants, I think. Like, this, that same stripey material is picked up on the sides of their trousers. I'm really glad that Adidas didn't get the product placement <laughs> contract on this show, because that would have been super distracting if it's just three stripes everywhere. Yeah. They're all outfitted like Steve Zissou. <laughs> I want to know what the disco stocking cap looks like. <laughs> the knit cap. That'd be nice. Maybe we'll see that in season two. We did see some people in soft focus in that like f- that like a- award ceremony scene at the very end mm-hmm. that had the same color of blue as a Steve Zissou tracksuit, but they were in soft focus, so that could be revealed to be anything. Right. Yeah, that's could true. Could be Zissous. <laughs> yeah, crew of Zissous back there. Yeah. One thing that I noticed throughout the season was the footwear, Ben, looked like a comfortable shoe, like a comfortable tennis shoe specifically on yeah. uh, on the Discovery crew and the Shenzhou crew. It's, the, it's that shoe that all the hype beasts are rocking. 
You want to be... I mean, you don't want to wear a dress shoe to a uh, to a hostile planet, I don't think, <laughs> right? You're not no. going to get the traction you want when you're trying to climb out of a crater. I don't, I don't... I've never actually tried any of these shoes on, the ones that have the, like, really, like, bright white marshmallow sole. Yeah. And then... And it, like, goes, like, an inch and a half off the back of the heel for some reason. Style is often the price of comfort. <laughs> ben, so those shoes must be very comfortable Yeah it's a, it's a wonder that my father hasn't bought a pair <laughs> We have engaged the Klingons What the hell is going on on this ship? The slightest idea I loved watching it uh, all the way through again Because it, it sort of freed the mind to lock on to some of these random details yeah. Did you enjoy the watch through more than uh, the first or the second? Um, I've I was a little surprised to find myself more interested in chapter one, being the nine episodes before the the long winter break that they took. Boy, me too, Ben. Because when we did our our show at the conclusion of the entire first season, I remember specifically saying, "Oh, I love the mirror universe." I would I. I was sort of lamenting that we weren't going to get back there anymore, that a second season was probably going to be somewhere else. Yeah. And having watched the se- the first season all over again, I found myself also preferring the first half. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of it was just because it was interesting to rewatch everything Lorca did knowing who he really is. Yeah. And... Uh, if this is the first time you're tuning into Greatest Discovery, uh, go back and listen from the beginning or watch the television program, because we're going to spoil everything. It really felt like you got two seasons for the price of one in in being able to rewatch this whole season again through the lens of the knowledge of who Lorca was throughout. And it made me appreciate Jason Isaac's performance so much more. I mean, I, I rode for Jason Isaac's pretty consistently throughout the first season but wow like to watch him again and all the subtlety that he deployed uh yeah i thought he was awesome i mean it's an interesting thing like all these things that he does that seemed meaningful and interesting like now have meaning and interest like you can kind of unpack them on the rewatch like times when michael burnham is going to go on a mission in a in a shuttle and Ash Tyler is going to be the pilot of that shuttle. And Lorca says like, don't bother coming back if it's not with her. Yeah. Like, don't, lo- don't let her die out there is, is something he is saying because like w- what we now know is because he loves her. I mean, there's, there's the moment of revelation in, I think it's episode 13 when, it, when the disco prime crew is, is told that, Lorca Mirror Universe was their captain the whole time and they show a little they show a little yeah. package of snippets and that's not one of them and it mm-hmm. was so rewarding to go through the rewatch and find your own package of snippets right. where all of this gets tied together yeah I used to take a package of snippets to, to school in my backpack and then the mean kids discovered that I had that and really made fun of me <laughs> you're gonna trade those snippets for a uh, a little Debbie oatmeal cream pie <laughs> Nobody would trade. Man, did you ever get down on those? That was the best little Debbie. I think I occasionally traded for ding dongs and ho hos. 
I don't even know who those kids were. That that seemed like real dessert to me yeah. and probably my parents. The oatmeal cream pie was at least ostensibly due to the oatmeal. <laughs> There's some vitamin yeah. in there somewhere. <laughs> There's some sort of nutritional value to that. There's a vitamin. Maybe mom should pack too. <laughs> Another Lorca moment that really meant something different to me was when he pulled the gun on Admiral Bob in bed. Yeah. In the moment that Red is like, this guy is a fucking nightmare shithead. I mean, he's also, he's like a nightmare shithead for other reasons uh, when we realize what he really is. But in that moment, that's just like, he doesn't know who this is because he's like coming out of sleep and he's disoriented. Right, right. If he and Admiral Bob had had, uh, had rolls in the hay several times before and he does that, it means he's like a violent abuser type. But he's not that. He's just a, you know, he's just a dystopic. What, what word am I looking for? Dist, he's just a dystopic despot. Right. To, to coin a term. I think that's what you just did. Another thing that I thought of was Lorca's lack of fear for being uh, captured or tortured, specifically uh, when he's thrown in that cell with mud and he's tortured by Laurel in there. Like, yeah. How minor stakes that torture must be like for someone who's experienced an agonizer booth. Like mm-hmm. all other forms of torture must be like being tickled with a feather, right? <laughs> so the so like his bravery in that moment, the first time I saw it was like, oh man, Lorca's super badass and he can stand up to anything, even even light bulbs pointing in his eyes, but like to know that he spent days and days, you know, both before and after in those booths experiencing the greatest amount of pain possible really, really changed how those scenes felt to me too. He's a character that really contains multitudes. The fact that he's dead is kind of a shame. I really appreciated his long con and how he was able to pull it off. Was he so motivated that the motivation was the reason he was so good at maintaining the con? Or was he less evil than other people in the mirror universe? And that's what allowed him to fit in as well as he did while he was there. I think it's all motivation. Yeah. I think he's also been around for a while. So he's had a long time to kind of figure out how to play these people and he really does con them i don't see this ending with you taking my shit let's talk about how long he's been around specifically because my mind jumped around to when exactly he entered the prime universe based on his story yeah but was it mirror universe Lorca in command of the baran when it was destroyed or was that prime Lorca? i think they change spots at that moment at the exact moment? Yeah, because isn't it like the ship is coming apart while he's being... Because the, in, in the Mirror Universe, that ship is destroyed by... By the Charon. Yeah, and he's like being transported right at that moment, and also there's a storm in space. His origin story about the Baran is repeated several times by several different people, and it... And for it to be such a big part of him, a big part of Prime Lorca, and to have Mirror Universe Lorca sort of embrace that origin story for himself. Looking back on it ruefully while he's like talking to people and stuff. It was one of the moments that where I had a rewrite Yeah. on the first season. And I think this could be something that we 
discuss as we talk about the first season is where we might have have done tweaks on it. I'll say that I love the first season and I am very happy with it as is, but um, I think there are some parts that that could use some tweaks and I think that's one of them. Like, I think it's more interesting to me if it was Mirror Universal Orca destroying the Baran and killing that whole crew and right. making that part of his origin story because, because I still like him by the end. Like, fuck, that's so fucked up. Like, Lorca yeah. is evil and he's killed so many people but, like, he's not evil enough for me, you know? The crazy thing is that we find out about that while he's, like, talking about it with regret. That was the scene in the cell with Mud when that whole, when the truth of his story gets revealed. The honorable captain was too good to go down with his ship. When he kind of puts together, oh, we're in a different universe and now we have to crash the party, we have to make the disco, the USS disco look like the ISS disco and he's so studied in how to blend in. Right. Uh, I, I, I hadn't like picked up on that being because he's been blending in for such a long time, but uh, that's why, that's why he's good at it. It's so easy. I think for a, a frightened crew to rally behind a captain who expresses a kind of certainty about the next step and especially when the captain's idea involves, you know, this sort of subterfuge, like Lorca is not saying that they should take the fight to the mirror universe. They're saying, we got to lay back in the cut. It's too dangerous right now. Let's blend in and, and skulk around. I think that is an idea that scared engineers would embrace. One thing I really thought a lot about on this watch through was like the mutiny is one thing at the beginning but it's foiled really quickly but then like for a lot of the rest of the first i don't know quarter of the season there's a lot of talk about how she's kind of at fault for the battle of the binary stars and that seems to me like like i guess the thing that you could draw a line to there is the fact that her spacesuit bumped into a klingon and poked his batleth through him right but that doesn't seem like like, does everybody buy that that's the reason 24 Klingon ships showed up and started fighting? Well, I think if you read the Federation newsletter <laughs> from the following week, that's yeah. the thing that's going to catch you up with uh, <laughs> the bullet points of the Battle of the Binaries. That's the trouble with members of Starfleet these days. They're getting all their news through Twitter, and it's just like the 140-character version. Yeah. They don't realize that uh, the Takuvma was waiting for somebody worthy of his attention. Sure. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? Those Klingons? I loved watching all of those, uh, all the scenes on the sarcophagus ship, especially in the first four-ish episodes, you know, seeing all the interactions between Laurel and Voke, Takuvma and Cole. Little mole with the gimpy leg. The lingering glances between Voke and Laurel, especially. Like, yeah. Like, Voke's such a big lug. <laughs> I thought a lot about Laurel and like the confusion that we had with her. Yeah. Like I would I, I haven't like gone back and listened, but I I'd bet that the first like six episodes we were a little bit confused that this was one character. Sure. Um I also think that part of that is that her makeup is really inconsistent. 
Totally. Especially the, the lower lip is like a real, it looks really different from episode to episode. And especially episode five, I was like, I wrote down like, this is like crazy what's going on with her lower lip right now. And I think that that contributed to it. it was like, I was like, A, I'm not used to this type of Klingon yet. So I'm like not used to remembering, oh, this one is this because of the, you know, scarification on his face. And this one has red tips on his uniform or whatever. But the makeup was also just inconsistent. Yeah, I, f- I felt especially that it, it was either a light issue on her or it was the hue of her skin had changed uh, from the early episodes to the middle and late episodes. But I, I completely agree. And I think what you're saying gets us off the hook, Ben. Not our fault. <laughs> yeah, not our fault. Um, I like the idea that we would be perfect viewers of this, though, like really understand everything about what they were going for and how successful they would be. Yeah, that isn't us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's uh I think that was most people watching the show, right? I think that was part yeah. of the fun was trying to figure it out. It was kind of a puzzle and that's very like that's a very JJ Abrams y kind of television, I feel like. But um this one actually like felt more cogent. Right. It was exceedingly difficult to hold a lot of these threads together on the first walkthrough, but on subsequent viewings they really do drop a lot of breadcrumbs, yeah. uh, both in character and in story, that do tie together. This was a very intricately crafted season. It's a Swiss fucking watch, man. Yeah, I mean, it was more intentional than I think we felt going through it the first right. time. I mean, one moment that really did that for me was was like Laurel very early on in her origin story is like, I come from this home world full of spies and deceivers. And, and like, our people are like this as a way to survive, and that informs every interaction she has with anyone else the entire season. Like, she cannot be trusted, and she told us she couldn't. And yet, her actions were still surprising. <laughs> yeah. I thought about how weird an experience she has, like, subjectively on the disco. Oh, yeah. When she, when she you know wraps her her arms around around the neck and gets beamed aboard she's in the brig for the entire chapter two basically until the very end so she gets put straight in the brig no info eventually saru comes down and is like kind of offhandedly mentions oh yeah by the way we're in this other universe now then she kills her lover and the person that she thinks is going to lead the Klingon revolution gets her ass kicked by a woman that she remembers eating. Right. And then they beam her down to Kronos and they're like, hey, here's the nuclear football. Lead your people. Like, what a wild ride. I want to see the see the whole six episodes from her perspective. If you cut together just her scenes into the eight minute package of just Laurel, <laughs> that story is bug nuts. Yeah, that might be the one that really asks you to suspend the most disbelief. You have already lost. And yet they do lay a lot of breadcrumbs to kind of posit the possibility of that. You know, the whole scene with her talking about how she doesn't necessarily crave power, but she's astute and she likes to be able to move with more freedom. Right. Like that really does plant the idea that she might have power thrust upon her. Yeah. There's story symmetry there. 
because, I mean, it's said almost verbatim the first time we meet her, and then it's said in the season finale. I mean, there's so many character symmetries throughout. There's like like even ship symmetries, like the idea of the ship of the dead being this old Klingon ship and the Shenzhou itself being like the jalopy of the Federation. The, uh, the space hoopty. Right. <laughs> Did you ever watch that show? Homeboys in Outer Space? Uh, pimp my space hoopty. We put cloaking devices on your cloaking devices on your cloaking devices. <laughs> ben, I don't know what show you're talking about. There was a show, it was on UPN, like when whatever TV network you had in Seattle changed to UPN. Sure. Like they bought like a, a whole bunch of series, you know, to fill up their brand new network. And the premise of it was like two homeboys, two black comedians, basically driving like a bad car around outer space. And it was like a sitcom with a laugh track. Oh, no. Yeah. Homeboys in outer space. Homeboys. Yeah. Uh, and this is appointment television for you? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch anything set in space, Adam. Fair enough. While we wait for another season of Homeboys in Outer Space, uh, do you want to talk about like what you thought of this season as a whole? Like, What do you think about the decision to make it a huge story arc that starts at episode one and largely ends at episode 15? I mean, I think you can think about it in a couple of ways. It's either the story, the story written by a studio that either isn't sure it's coming back for a season two. Right. Or is sure it's coming back for a season two doing something totally different or is, has the confidence of people who have created an arc that will continue in a linear fashion. Like they had a way out and it doesn't appear like they're going to take that way out from what we've heard about what season two is going to be like same cast, same crew. So I, I've really like taken a vow of not reading much about this show uh, so that I could have my own thoughts and opinions not accidentally plagiarizing somebody else. Sure. But, um... All of my thoughts are plagiarized, by the way. That's the premise of the show. One really original guy and another guy who just copies everything from other places. No, but I've, I've heard that, like, they... It was going to be, like, jumping around in time, but it would always be set on a starship called the Discos. So it might be, like, the Discovery D in the next season or whatever. Oh, interesting. And, like, set in a TNG like timeline but i don't think that that's what they're going for i mean like they really set up characters and it seems like they would have to kind of win everybody over anew and also spend all the money to like design the world again anew it would be a much easier task to pivot to new crew new time if this crew wasn't so great and the performances weren't so good. Like, yeah. I think it's one of the, it's one of those situations when you uh, you hire a temp employee and they end up get, <laughs> like earning a full time job based on on how great of a job they did. Like, I don't think there's any way you can pivot out away from these characters anymore. And yet, like, I think the the stakes of this season are so high. It's such a cataclysmic thing that they thwart. It's like. 
it's like the movies, you know, they're always, it always winds up being that they have to save the earth. Yeah. You know, the earth is going to be destroyed and we need to save it. And that only, you know, in TNG or whatever, like that doesn't happen that often. That's like once every season or two, there's a thing that's like an existential threat to all humans. Yeah. And when you start a series, a full 10 out of 10 in terms of stakes, like your choice is either to maintain that level of intensity or dial it back. The studios, man, they are not, they do not love dialing back stakes. Sure. You know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm honestly a little worried for season two because I don't know how you go up from here. I don't know either. I mean, do you feel like your trust has been earned based on season one? Definitely. I think the, like from a writing and performance standpoint, I thought it was a pretty remarkable achievement. I think the set design is really cool, but maybe a little, a little more attention could have been paid to like, how do we tell different ships apart uh, when we're on them? Which ship we're on is super confusing and hard to remember even having watched it now like three or four times right i think they've earned my trust too i'm willing to go where the show takes me i think it would take like i love the idea of them lowering the stakes and like having the confidence to maybe make a season where it isn't a big swiss watch like this like what happens when reinstated medal of honor recipient michael burnham has to like do a lot of monster of the weeks it sort of makes me feel like there's a name for this that escapes me but like when you go through a conflict or or something terrifically emotional with someone like the idea of like you fall in love with that person a lot of times like right like you you form a bond like like sandra bullock and keanu reeves in speed sure you go to the university of arizona yeah so good football team that sort of describes the relationship that I have with these characters in that I wonder if having gone through this kind of conflict with them over the course of 15 episodes, if that has cemented my feelings for them in a way that if you dial the intensity back for a season two, like I'm already in love with them, like <laughs> like it's going to be cool no matter what. In a way that if they, if it was like basic Star Trek you know, on a let that's like a four on the intensity scale in season one. That like maybe season two, you don't ride for them as hard. Right. It'll be it'll be very interesting to see where they go. We have engaged the Klingons. What did you think of Lorca's con, like as a plan? thought so much about this especially starting back from the beginning like if you're mirror universe Lorca and your whole deal is to go back to the mirror universe and overthrow the emperor and save your crew of of people from the agonizer booths like is this plan the best way to do that because <laughs> it sure seems like a long fucking walk to get yeah. there if you if if you get on a science ship with a weird drive that's unproven. Right. Like, like if he knows about the Defiant, why doesn't he try to go for Prime Universe Defiant? Knowing because the Prime that, Universe Defiant is there, is in the Mirror Universe. But 
here's one thing that I that I figured out on the rewatch is that in the Prime Universe, Prime Universe Defiant hasn't gone back to the Mirror Universe yet. Oh, like at the beginning of Lorca's time there. Yeah. So if Lorca found his way to the Defiant, he could have made that jump back with it. But how would he have known that the Defiant was going? Because I think having been from the Mirror Universe, he knows. Because Prime Universe Defiant goes back to Mirror Universe's past. They said that very specifically. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It wasn't just a a one-for-one time trade there. I missed that. The one thing I did pick up was that there's like some dialogue where the data that they needed to complete the map of how to get from Prime to Mirror Universe, they got in the huge number of jumps that Stamets had to do to Mm -hmm. decode the the cloaking shield. And at some point, like, Sarah's like, well, that's a crazy coincidence. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, you know, like that number of jumps is something that comes from Lorca. Right. I'm still a little unclear about how adept Lorca is as a scientist. He sometimes seems to be like really into science and sometimes seems to not know what anybody is talking about. Yeah, that conflict is interesting to me too. At some point, it really seems like he needs them. But at other points, like, why is Lorca the only one who has mapped all of the jumps and all of the data together in a in a handy log that reveals all of the mirror universe stuff. Like, cause when he reveals it to Stamets, Stamets is like, Whoa, shit. You mean you've logged all this stuff? Like Jesus Christ, Stamets, like you're a scientist. <laughs> like you should have done this too. This should have been no surprise to him. Yeah. That's uh, maybe a little bit of a hole. Stamets is a totally interesting character to me. And I think one way that I had hoped for more information was we get a little bit of exposition from Mirror Universe Stamets about his attempts to reach Prime Stamets, and that being the reason for his confusion. He calls Tilly Captain, and he starts blabbering on about uh, the palace and whatnot. I wish we got a little bit more of that, right? Yeah, there were, like, between that and the Ash-Voke combination, there's a lot of hand-waving about the... The way, like, the Technobabble works in this right. series. I didn't necessarily understand the warp bubble the first time I watched TNG, but it's it's really, like, consistently there the whole time. Right. On, on rewatches, and, and you see graphics of it on screens and things. And I guess maybe it seems possible that they have really detailed explanations of this, you know, up on a post-it note in the writer's room but didn't want to dig into it too badly in expository dialogue yeah like stamets will say all this veiled stuff like one of the things i wrote down was was he mentions halfway through the season what i know seems to be changing and to me i was inferring that to mean that mirror universe stamets and prime universe stamets were blending together somehow or, like, occasionally changing sides. Like, that moment when he looks into the mirror and then walks to bed with Culber, but then, like, there's another Stamets in the mirror. Like, what was that actually? Yeah, and why didn't they fade that episode out on Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror? (laughs) 
one last question I had, which is like the smallest question. Oh, look, it's the littlest question. It's the littlest question. Aww. In episode three, when the, you know, when the prisoners are getting brought on to Starship Discovery for the first time, and they're like walking around in the hallway, and they're like, oh, it's so clean, it's so new. Why are there all these scientists here? And they go past a guy who's like guarding a door with a rifle. And they're like, have you ever seen a black badge? And the camera punches in on this guy's black Starfleet badge. Yeah. And then you never see that again. Yeah. There's like, there's other security characters, but they don't have black badges. What was that guy? What was he guarding? I wonder when you're breaking a season and you're breaking individual episodes, just how many, like, I wonder if there's a version of the season that actually chased that thread down and then, and then they just cut it after the fact. You would think that the costume department would be like, oh, well, we made a couple of these black badges. Like, if there's a security guard in this scene, and it's like a scene where security is extra high, we'll throw a black badge on the background actor that we hired to be that guy. Yeah, there wasn't even one callback. You're right. I want that black badge, though. Like, if I'm a, if I'm a hallway extra in season <laughs> two, put a black badge on me. Fair enough. <laughs> I know you have one. The black badge being the most powerful model. Getting an entire season to experience the world through Sylvia Tilly was a great joy for me. Mostly because um, without having to concentrate too much on plot, just taking in how Mary Wiseman and the rest of the cast acts their characters. One thing that I really noticed about Mary Wiseman's performance is, uh, is her breath work. In her line reads, like where she chooses to take a breath informs her attitude and how either nervous or comfortable she is. And that shit is so next level. Like if you're just breaking down your dialogue on a page and you're taking it to set ready to go, like a lot of people would highlight the lines and memorize them and then do however many takes it took for a director to be satisfied. But where she chooses to breathe in order to convey uh, her stress or her awkwardness, you just don't see that. It's really powerful. It's really powerful. It's very, I feel like the evidence of it, you don't even necessarily notice it initially. It's just character. But right. then like she, she'll be in a different mood and it's, it's totally different. Or like the party scenes where yeah. she's like really loosened up suddenly. And you're like, wow, this is like a different... Tilly or when she's playing Captain Killy like such a different kind of character this dude is like on another level man he'll show you these YouTube videos it'll just it'll change your life the party episode episode 7 was especially good for rewatching because there was some shit I picked up that even after two rewatches earlier I didn't get like uh, you only see it once because the cycle starts over again after this happens, but in the party, uh, Reese makes a pass at Tilly during beer pong, and she totally shuts him down. Oh, man. And that was fun. And also Detmer's making out with, uh, <laughs> with the Patrick Bateman-looking officer that we see a couple of times on the bridge crew. Like, yeah. full on. Like, they're, they're like, lap-sitting together. And those, like, interpersonal relationships are things that were only hinted at at this party. I feel like anytime on TNG, 
an interpersonal relationship was happening. It was either like an extra that we will never see again, you know, like Riker meeting up with some babe in the yeah. in Ten Forward, or it's like the main thing that the episode is about. Right. <laughs> like it's it's either one, but not like just oh yeah, like that's somebody that we see on the bridge from time to time, and they have a life of their own. Yeah. You know. Was there a moment in the season where you broke the season? Like, was there a moment where you're like, well, this doesn't make sense. And because this doesn't make sense, you can make the case that the rest of the season doesn't. The nitpickers moment for me was that the Federation didn't go back to to the sarcophagus ship after the Battle of the Binary Stars to remove the cloaking device. That's the, the MacGuffin that enables the fleet to effectively battle the Federation. Yeah, and it's just hanging out there for six months. And everyone knows it's there, right? They all witness. And the Shenzo is too. Yeah, like why don't they go back for it? This is after an episode one where they say, like, we have extremely good tech hygiene. Yeah, and then they go and grow out their bush by leaving the Shenzo out there. (laughs) The other thing about that that I was wondering is... Is that it's not the ship of the dead that crashes into the Europa, is it? It's like a different it's like a blade ship or something. Yeah. Yeah. God, there are there are so many different Klingon ships. Yeah. But you never get to see that blade ship like wide enough to see it it kind of looks like the prow of an ocean going ship, you know? Yeah. You were made to hate the the Zap Brannigan character, the captain of the Europa. <laughs> or the Admiral that was on the Europa the whole time. But man, when the Europa gets destroyed and self-destructs itself on the Klingon ship that rammed it, that is a brutal scene. That was really yeah. well done. Do you think if Phil Hartman had been alive, he would have gotten stunt cast as the as the Admiral in <laughs> Season 1, Episode 1? Hi, I'm Admiral Anderson. You might have seen me in such star battles as binary stars and... <laughs> What's this, a butthole? <laughs> uh, was there anything else, like, if you're going to be super pedantic? Like, like I think it's it's important to be fair here. I think this has been uh, one big slop, slobber fest over uh, season one. Uh, We've sure to, licked a lot of ass at him. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if there's something for you to pick. Well, well I, I think we've made this point before, but I feel like it's worth remaking. I think it completely sucks the way they put this series out. I almost wish, I mean, like I have this, I have so many complicated feelings about it. Like I wish that the season had been great, but nobody had watched or something so that Hmm. they had like, you know, made a great series, but hadn't justified their terrible business practice of making a different streaming service that we have to pay different money for. I'm really scared of the, you know, two, three years from now future where all content is so siloed and behind a paywall that none of us have anything in common to talk about at this point. You know, like, oh, like those people watch those shows and, and we watch these shows and we will never encounter those shows even because we don't subscribe to that service. And, uh, I think it's like a bad, it's a bit like for society, a bad way to go. It's also an annoying way to go because, you know, the commercial free version of CBS All Access is more expensive than other better streaming services. And the idea that they 
wouldn't have had just as big a hit on their hands if they'd, you know, sold the IP to Netflix entirely or just, you know, made a deal with Hulu or whatever. That would have been better for the world and, you know, better for our podcast, <laughs> selfishly, you know, if if this had been like Game of Thrones where lots and lots of people have access to it already and want to watch it, you know. I bet we would have had five times as many listeners to this podcast. It's that good of a series, you know? Yeah, I mean, as a consumer, I fear I fear the same things as you've enumerated. As the creator of something and as someone who wants to get it out into the world for as many people to see as possible, it's also another way that I don't understand this because, like, this is what a contract is for, right? If you're right. CBS, you can... You can create this show and you can put it on Netflix and you can make a boatload of money there. It, the idea of them having to bootstrap a pay network, an online yeah. pay network, where all of its shows live, that's an amount of control that I can appreciate. Like, I can see the advantages of that. But where where does it end? How many networks get their own silo? I wound up just getting the one whole year without commercials for like $111 or something. But I was like, I'm going to be making a podcast about this. I might as well. And then in retrospect, I'm like, why didn't I just sign up for the months that it was coming out and then not pay other months? That would have been a better way to do it. This is why we are not accountants. (laughs) The reasons why we are not accountants are something that become more and more abundantly clear the more podcasts we start at them. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, look out for the greatest podcast network. <laughs> Soon to be doomed to failure. <laughs> I think the question about uh, what job Dr. Culber had on the ship was not made perfectly clear. We know he's a medical officer. He's not the chief medical officer on the ship. What my headcanon presupposes is, is he the (laughs) ship's plastic surgeon? (laughs) Because all he does is superficial stuff. And watching the entire series basically in a day made this clear to me. Like, he's fixing broken noses. He fixed Michael Burnham's uh, fucked up scars. Yeah, he's stitching up cuts. Yeah. He's the plastic surgeon. Wow. In a universe where often people are concealing themselves as other types of alien to go on special missions. It makes sense that a ship would have a plastic surgeon. Absolutely. I don't know why they didn't have one on the on the entrepreneur on on TNG. It's a post currency universe, but it's not a post vanity universe. <laughs> Sexual attractiveness is its own currency. <laughs> don't I know it? And I'm broke. <laughs> it me. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. 
That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. What? What? What's happening? What? No! What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? Why don't we wrap this up, Adam? We're not going to do a drunk Shimoda, are we? No, I don't think we should do that. Maybe maybe we'll have some final thoughts here, and maybe we'll, we'll choose some favorite things of this first season of Star Trek Discovery. What do you think about that? I am into that idea. Maybe just in summary, I will say about season one that uh, it was a relief and a joy to feel like we got some some good, good Star Trek. To, to This is a way that I've put returning to franchises in movies. Like, it's good to be back in this world again and to have that world be good. 
I think the show is great and the cast is greater. When the show is great, it's the characters that speak for themselves, though. And when it's not, and this is something that I noticed on the rewatch especially, it's the writers speaking through the characters. For this show to be great, I think the show needs to get better at that, specifically. Like, there are clearly great writers on this staff. Uh, The show is run very well. But, I mean, you even hear them talk about it on shows like After Trek or in interviews. Like, they are monologuing. And I love my characters, like, to speak more honestly from their perspective than to feel like they are they are ventriloquist dummies for uh, the writer's room. So maybe that's something that, uh, that having done a first season, uh, the monologuing will, will get a little more real feeling. But I think that would be another nit I have to pick about this first season. But all in all... Uh, I've got a lot of love for it, and I'm looking forward to it returning. Yeah, I do too. And I don't think um, the fact that it has imperfections are is pretty inevitable. The fact that the imperfections did not overwhelm it is um, is a relief. You know, I yeah. went in expecting this to be terrible, basically, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I mean, and I was like convinced it was going to be terrible for the first 10 minutes of the first episode. <laughs> right. The uh the drawing of the of the logo in the sand was was really rough. Just as cringy as the first time I watched it. And that was maybe the starkest example of of characters speaking to audience instead of speaking for themselves like there's no reason for michael burnham to be saying the thing the things that she's saying on that planet there's no reason for the captain to be on the planet surface at that moment either there that is a terrible terrible (laughs) series open (laughs) yeah (laughs) the worst the like the the amount of getting the bends between that series open and the series that we got after it is insane because i were a crazy boys <laughs> what are your favorite moments from the season yeah going from i think what you could call my least favorite moment which you know having said it god the first five minutes of the series to be that to get it out of the <laughs> way is kind of a miracle i think yeah um my favorite moment of the season, I think, might be when Tilly sits next to Ash post Klingon lobotomy. Nothing could be truer to her nature than her doing that. It really affected me uh, all three times I saw it. I thought I thought that was a, a great moment for her. My favorite visual moment might be different, and that might be something that we both can discuss too. That uh, the Veda Moon spore terraforming. Mm-hmm. was really breathtaking and awesome. Like, that whole sequence was great. That was pretty fun. What about you? There's a visual that they come back to a bunch of times in the series, and it's uh, it's like a really, really close shot on a character's eye, mm-hmm. where, you know, when you get that close to your subject, almost like a macro shot, right? like your plane of focus is is super thin and they do it when michael burnham is going on her spacewalk to the klingon artifact in episode one they do it a couple times with Lorca. they use that that shot 
a bunch of times. They, I think they use it with Stamets when he's doing his tons of jumps run. It's a very like hard genre mm. look, you know? It's a very almost like exploitation film idea for a shot. And it's very evocative and a very fun shot and it's almost always an eye with stars reflected in it and i loved i loved that little motif i loved that it came back and you know the the meaning of it evolved and you know eyes wind up being really important in the end uh and uh, i thought it was really cool have you ever used macro lenses in any of your video work because i only have with product videos i've never used them for actors and this show really like has inspired me to try to find a use for that down the road yeah. at some point. I have only ever used them for products. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be extremely challenging to do yeah. that on a moving subject. Right. What was your favorite moment? I'm right there with you. That, that moment of humanity from Tilly to Ash Tyler. I really think that Tilly is the, is the conduit for Michael Burnham's repentance and the arc of the season almost seems like they worked their way back from it is that in the first episode she sort of betrays starfleet values and in the final episode she's the only one that stands up for them and you know like talks an admiral down from the brink of committing a genocide and um i think that the humanity in Tilly and the way she, you know, truly believes in those ideals, not in a naive way, but in a way that is, uh, you know, eyes open and committed to them on their face. You know, I didn't really realize that that was something that was having an influence on the character of Michael Burnham the entire time, but I really think it was. And I think that's a cool writing trick that just being around Tilly was changing Michael Burnham without them pointing their finger at it ever. Their proximity to each other was enough a lot of times. I like that quite a bit. Because a roommate is like an automatic built-in friend. And Okay, Ben. Uh, one thing that I wanted to spring on you as a question <laughs> that, I, that I made sure not to discuss with you beforehand was... Oh, no. If you were the host of After Trek... <laughs> who would you want to be on your panel and what would you ask them that is an interesting question um if like the greatest discovery after trek goes into an off-season mode and they put out an episode once a month or so and uh-huh. has interesting people and adam and ben get the joan rivers tap on the shoulder to fill in for uh <laughs> for the the host they have now um I would be very interested to talk to the showrunners and I don't know if there's like bad blood or anything, but I'd also be interested to talk to Brian Fuller who kind of put a lot of, I mean, put enough of his DNA into the show that he's listed as a created by, right? Yeah. And to my knowledge, he hasn't really said anything about the show since it's been out. Yeah. I wonder what's up with that. He would be on my fantasy panel for sure. And that would be my question for him too. Like, where did your creative diverge from the show that we saw in season one? Right. I'd love to talk to Nichelle Nichols, who, you know, is the inspiration for the character of Michael Burnham to hear Mm -hmm. 
to hear them talk about it and see what she see how she feels as like a woman who went from like not liking working on Star Trek that much and being talked into staying by Martin Luther King Jr. who felt it was important to have you know representation of a capable professional black woman on television at that time um and like see you know like i would be very interested to hear her talk about like how far we've come in some ways and also like this show comes out amidst a political context that a lot of people are kind of waking up to the terrible situation black americans still find themselves in and yeah you know what it means for you know uhura of this show to be the kirk of this show right um so those would be my those would be my people i'd be especially interested in talking to how about you um i think i definitely share uh the brian fuller pick i think that's a great one it takes a, a great story to sell a network on green lighting the show and to think that the show that we saw wasn't the one that was bought yeah is fascinating to me right like 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 the, it's like uh, buying a bag of of apples and getting oranges when you get home like great fruit <laughs> yeah but, uh, but it's not what you bought so like i'm i'm fascinated by that part of it i think yeah. um i would really I mean, Gretchen Berg gets a lot of the credit as showrunner. I know she shares showrunner credit with some others, but um, I've seen a lot of her being interviewed on After Trek and in some other places, and she seems whip-smart and and great. Uh, but I would primarily ask her a lot about her time uh, writing Beverly Hills 90210 in the late 90s. You know, oh, I think, nice. I think we could talk a lot about that. <laughs> and I think my third panelist would be Matt Myra, because check this out, Ben. I've watched now many episodes of After Trek, and I have not liked a lot of it. It is not Matt Myra's fault, I don't think. <laughs> I think he would be better on that show on the panel than he would as a host, because I think what that show needs is someone with his knowledge to shake it up instead of host the show. Huh someone to act as our proxy and by our i mean like the the star trek interested viewership right and i think as host he has a hard time doing that because he's he's big rotted right like right he's in the pocket and he's under extraordinary pressure i bet to remain in that pocket and to not ask a question that could be that could generate any kind of conflict and that's it's the problem of the journalist who can't ask a politician a tough question because that'll be the last time a politician agrees to be in a room with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, maybe maybe that's something that they could have done with that show from the beginning is like have there's like a there's a rich tapestry of people out there commenting on Star Trek. I feel like I would be much more interested in watching that show perhaps if uh if i knew that there was always somebody that was there as a fan and you know saying their opinion and if they're a fan of star trek but not a fan of this show that's even more interesting you know yeah i our, agree our buddy manu sadia would be would be fascinating to see on a show like that yeah i think so too i think i think a conversation about the show can be as diverse as as the cast and the and the creative staff behind it. You can check out Manu's book, Treconomics, 
anywhere books are sold. It's really cool, like exploration of what the real, like what real economic principles went into the Star Trek universe. Great plug, Ben. <laughs> well, uh, I think I think we, that might be a good way to wrap it up this first season of Star Trek Discovery, Ben. I think yeah. uh, it's been great to re- to rewatch it tip to tail. One more time, I'm sure I will probably rewatch much of, if not all of it, before season two comes out. But yeah, I'm sure we'll have to uh, re- reacquaint ourselves by that point. In the meantime, we're going to go to a less frequent release schedule, but we'll still be making episodes. And um, I think the first thing I'm going to do is go like read everything that's been written and uh, see if I uh, was more or less keeping up with what people were saying on on this show. Um, if you want more Ben and Adam, and this is the only podcast of ours that you listen to, we've, we've got two others to tide you over in the meantime. We've, of course, got The Greatest Generation, which is our Star Trek podcast. We covered all of Star Trek TNG, and we are now working our way through Deep Space Nine. And uh, that's a show that really rewards listening from the beginning. And uh, we hear all the time from people who are like, hey, I found out about your show six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I've listened to every episode twice. <laughs> it's uh, it's so rewarding multiple times through. That's what yeah. we hear. That's what we hear. Um, and uh, we also have our new show, Friendly Fire, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is about war movies. And we do it with our friend John Roderick. And uh, there's like six or seven episodes of that out now. And uh, all of this is available on MaximumFun.org, where you can also go to support the program. I feel like um, Greatest Discovery was a big experiment for us and the network. We uh, we weren't sure if this was going to be just, you know, 15 bonus episodes of Greatest Gen or something else. And the network took a flyer on it, and uh, we've been really pleased with... The response we got so we really appreciate everybody that uh that subscribed and you know made this a real thing and uh those who donated at maximumfund.org slash donate i think that's one of the primary reasons we're able to do this so thank yeah. you thanks a lot guys and uh also a huge huge thanks to rob schulte who made season one possible and uh we hope he's with us for season two because we you know take great care to edit our shows and um, bringing in an editor that's not Ben or Adam was a big, uh, a big scary thing for us. But uh, Rob did an amazing job with uh, with this and was always like super on point with getting the episodes edited and turned around on time every week, which uh, would have been basically impossible if it had been Adam or me doing this. So, yeah, it's true. Well, take it away, Rob, and we will uh, be back here in about a month. Yeah. See you then, Adam. See you then, Ben. And not any time in between now and then. The Greatest Discovery is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusia. Head to MaximumFun.org to support the ongoing production of this show. Please use the hashtag GreatestGen when discussing the show on Twitter. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, and Adam is at CutForTime. 
and make sure to check out the Greatest Gin Reddit and Facebook groups if you're looking to continue the conversation even further. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.